Hey there, humanoids. This is David Shoemaker here with a very exciting announcement. Your favorite wrestling podcast feed, The Ringer Wrestling Show, is now going daily. And you can hang out with me and Kaz on Mondays and Thursdays for The Masked Man Show. And you can join me, Peter Rosenberg, alongside stack guy Greg and Dip every Tuesday with Cheap Heat. And on Fridays, I'll welcome a friend or special guest from the world of wrestling. And on Wednesdays, we have a very special new show called Wednesday Worldwide that you're going to want to check out. Pay-per-view reaction, one-of-a-kind interviews, fantasy booking, talking about bagels. That's what we do here on the Ringer Wrestling Show. Follow the show now on Spotify and do us a favor. Give us five stars. And do us another favor and uh, stay mage. It's Off the Pike presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page and the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com slash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus in president select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I wanna wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC Pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Busy pod after the Patriots go down to the Jets in the season finale. So just to outline what we're going to do here, I do want to get into some Celtics because Colin Cowherd with a controversial comment about Jason Tatum late last week that we didn't get to last week. So I want to get to that and just the Celtics played really well over the weekend, so I want to address some things with the Celts. One guy I was really impressed with over the weekend, not named Jason Tatum, we'll get into that. But coming up next, you'll hear our FanDuel portion of the show, which airs Monday mornings at 9 a.m., so we'll get into the Pats next. I'm Brian Barrett from Off the Pike. The Patriots season mercifully came to an end as they finished 4-13 and after falling to the Jets. We're usually joined by James White, but he rang the bell at Gillette prior to the season finale. I'm sure James had a great time besides the results of the game, of course, but congrats to James for doing that. It looked like a lot of fun, but so we'll get into the Pats here. They put up three points in the snow. They had a chance late and Zappi got bailed out, right? He threw an interception and then the Patriots find a way to get the ball back. Kaseki forces a fumble and two plays later, Zappi throws into double coverage and he throws another interception. It was sort of symbolic of the season for the Patriots, right? The offense was anemic, and they turned the ball over all season long, and their season ends with a turnover by the quarterback, Bailey Zappi. And they lose to the Jets, so that 15-game winning streak that the Patriots had over the Jets, that has now been snapped. And that would be a really difficult way for the Bill Belichick era to come to an end for the Patriots with a loss to the Jets, because we know 
how much Bill Belichick hates the Jets. Now, before we even get to that, the good news is the Patriots are going to have a much better chance at drafting their quarterback of the future as they are locked into a top three pick, whether it be Drake May, whether it be Jaden Daniels or Michael Penix, who is going to be playing for a national championship. Like the Patriots are in that top three, so they certainly are going to have a chance to upgrade the quarterback position, which is something we've been calling for all season long. So that's the good thing from the loss to the Jets, despite the 15-game winning streak being over. For the long-term health of the organization, this result, losing to New York, was a good result, right? And if you look at this, look at what has happened over the past couple of years with this team, and in particular with the head coach and the GM of the team, too, and Bill Belichick. It hasn't been good enough, right? But I do want to get to sort of another portion of this right? Because we're going to find out the future of Bill Belichick very quickly here, whether or not he's going to be back. But and from my perspective, I want Bill back as the coach and go get Adam Peters from San Francisco, who's been working at a great front office, have him make the personnel decisions and bring back Bill because Bill has not lost the locker. The guys still play hard for Bill. So I would still bring Bill Belichick back. But I do think it's interesting to look at this from the Robert Kraft perspective, right? Because I do think that he needs to be careful with this situation because for whatever reason, Robert Kraft has escaped a lot of criticism, right? It's as if he gets no blame. So I'm going to preface what I'm about to say with Robert Kraft is arguably the greatest owner of the history of the NFL. You don't get six Super Bowls without Robert Kraft, right? And he saved the franchise in a lot of ways. But he needs to be careful how he handles this thing because he wants a lot of the praise. He doesn't want any of the blame, right? And if you remember back to the Brady divorce, Brady decides to go to Tampa, of course, and Stephen A. Smith is doing his show on first take. Robert Kraft calls Stephen A. Smith during his break to essentially tell Stephen A. Smith that Tom Brady would have still been a Patriot if he wanted to be a Patriot. And we all know that wasn't the case, right? Tom wanted the Drew Brees contract at the end, and they were not going to give it to him, right? So, and Brady essentially is sitting there all he wants is to be supported at the end, right? Brady even said prior to the 2019 season, when he was asked if he thinks he should get an extension, he said, that's up for sports talk show debate. You should ask Mr. Kraft. So Tom was obviously irritated by this, right? Tom knew that Belichick would eventually want to move on from him. And even going back to the Garoppolo thing, right? He knew like Bill was mad about that. He wanted to move on and eventually give the job to Garoppolo. But what Brady didn't think is that Kraft would want to move on from him, right? Kraft has called him basically a son. So the last time a historical figure left this organization, because Bill is a historical figure despite the past couple of years, Kraft tried to blame Brady, right? Like he legitimately tried to blame Brady publicly. Nobody bought it, right? But even if you look at what has happened since Brady has left and now where sort of the blame has gone, Bill deserves the blame. Like I, I totally understand that. He's done a bad job running the team. He hired Matt Patricia as the offensive coordinator. The drafting has been bad. The personnel has been bad. We have been through this, right? But if you think about the way that Robert Kraft has handled Bill Belichick, remember at the owner's meetings, he's asked about Bill breaking Don Shula's record. And he says, I'd like him to break Don Shula's record, but I'm not looking for any of our players to get great stats. We're about winning. That's our focus. It's like, this guy brought you six Super Bowls. Can you just answer the question and say, yeah, I'd love him to break it here. You don't have to say all this stuff about stats, right? Then he said about last season, we experimented with some things last year that frankly didn't work. Everybody would agree on that. He said, I thought the changes had to be made, and I think we made some moves and changes that give our personnel or that give me personally some hope this upcoming season. 
I think Patricia, and he doesn't say Patricia by name, but he means Patricia, got put in a difficult position. I think it was sort of an experiment. I think it would have been hard for it to work out. In retrospect, I think it was not the right thing. And he goes on to say, I'm very happy we're able to bring in a new offensive coordinator to help develop our young quarterback, Mac Jones. I think bringing back Bill O'Brien has been a big plus for our franchise. Okay, so let's stop there for a second here. Bill O'Brien was not a big plus for the organization. Bill O'Brien had a bad season as the Patriots offensive coordinator. Nobody can present an argument to the contrary. He also referenced, hey, Bill O'Brien can help save Mac Jones. Remember, Robert Kraft wanted credit for the Mac Jones draft pick. He was at least in some part behind the pick. He wanted a quarterback after the failed experiment with Cam Newton the prior season. So in some sense, Bill made an agreement, you would think, with Kraft that he would draft Mac Jones or a quarterback. If that quarterback was there at 15, they draft Mac Jones. And what happened last year is all the blame was put on Matt Patricia. And I'm not saying he doesn't deserve not to be blamed. And Bill certainly deserves blame as well because you can't have Matt Patricia running the offense, right? But I just look at it from the perspective of if the Patriots, let's say hypothetically, and this is a hypothetical that never would have happened because we saw the results. If the Patriots had made it to the playoffs, and Mac looked like the quarterback that he was in his first season. Who gets the credit? Not Bill. It's Bill O'Brien and Robert Kraft to be taking a lot of the credit for bringing in Bill O'Brien. So he wanted the praise. He doesn't want the criticism when, of course, the guy that he brought in has been a failure in Bill O'Brien. So a couple of things here. If Robert does decide to move on from Bill, it's justified, really, not even just over the past four years since Tom left, the last five going back to Brady's final season here, going back to like the Nikhil Harry pick and the direction of the roster at that particular point in time, right? Like it's certainly justifiable to move on from Bill. But moving on from Bill, I think this is something that sort of goes under the radar here. Moving on from Bill also points out that Kraft failed when he made the decision to go with Bill over Tom. No matter what he wants to say, Robert Kraft about the Belichick-Brady divorce or the Brady-Patriots divorce, he could have stopped it, right? (laughs) Robert Kraft is the owner of the team. He could have come out and said, hey, Bill, if you don't give Tom the Drew Brees deal, well, guess what? You're not my coach anymore. And he didn't do that. Instead, (laughs) what Robert Kraft tried to do is blame the greatest quarterback in the history of the NFL. And he tried to get people to believe that, hey, actually, Tom could have been here if he wanted to. Yes, under your restrictions with a contract that wasn't the Drew Brees contract, right? And to me, like just going through all this stuff, the Shula comment came across as ungrateful to me, even if he was being set up like, hey, do you want Bill to break the Shula record? Is that what it's all about? To paraphrase what the question was. But he brought you six Super Bowls and you just sort of poo-poo that answer and talk about it's important for me to get to the playoffs, right? But anyway, with the way that this thing is uncrumbled here, Belichick deserves the most blame, especially like for the NFL stuff. He was in charge of the team. But it just feels like from my perspective, there's been no accountability on Robert Kraft's end, right? Where it's like, you made these decisions, right? He even said at the owner's meeting, he supported the Patricia decision. He said, Bill does things unconventionally and they usually work out. So he supported that decision. So my whole point with this is you better be sure that Gerard Mayo is the right guy. Or if you're going after Mike Vrabel, because Ian Rappaport said on Sunday that Vrabel could be out in Tennessee, not just because he wants to go or not just because the organization wants to move on, but he may want to move on, right? He said, uh, Rappaport did. The Patriots, who inducted Vrabel into their Hall of Fame in October, have ignited speculation when Vrabel was spotted watching the game from Robert Kraft's suite 
with when Tennessee had its bye, potentially could have an opening soon and would be a logical landing spot. I always thought it was weird that he was in the owner's box like during the season. I get it. It's he's going into the Hall of Fame. I just thought that was weird. Like another head coach is sitting with the owner watching the game. But anyway, so if you look at Rabel, he pulls off the upset over Jacksonville. So six wins this past season, seven the year before. And if you look at it, it was more roster based. Like I think Vrabel is a really good head coach and things really went south there after they traded A.J. Brown. But my whole thing is, why would Vrabel want this job? Because if you think about it, we know Harbaugh, if he's out there, if he decides to move on from Michigan, he's the front of the line. A lot of teams are going to want Jim Harbaugh. And obviously, when you look at Vrabel, yes, he has a relationship with Kraft. I understand the connection there. But Washington has a high draft pick as well. You start to think about it. Well, what if Harbaugh doesn't want the Chargers job? If you're Vrabel, the thing you haven't had is a quarterback. So if you're Vrabel, there's other destinations, especially considering the success that you've had in this league, where it may be a better fit than the fit that the Patriots have, right? So I just look at it like this. So he better nail the next head coach in terms of the hiring, because we've talked about Bill's legacy taking a hit without Tom, right? Well, guess what? Like Kraft, yes, they made it to the Super Bowl in 96 with Parcells. We all know how that ended, and it was ugly. And in terms of the whole lead up to that situation with Robert Kraft and Bill Parcells. But Kraft's legacy without Brady, sure, it's good the fact that he saved the Patriots, that he went to the Super Bowl with Parcells, but this decision now, in terms of getting the next head coach right, if you're moving on from Bill Belichick, that's important for his legacy as well, right? It's the biggest move that he's made in a long time if he decides to move on from Bill. And if it's just going to be Gerard Mayo, what's the rush to do it, right? And I do think, at least in some aspects of the team it just feels like the and it all the momentum is going the other direction but it seems like the most logical thing to me is just to bring back bill belichick if you can convince bill and it felt like today or excuse me sunday it felt like it was basically it it felt like everybody was talking about the end of belichick whatever pregame show you watched whatever reporter you were following it felt like the end of bill belichick but i would just ask you this what's the rush if he hasn't lost the locker room, what's the rush to move on from Bill? It still looked like a team that was playing at a high level from my perspective. And the one other thing that Robert Kraft has to be concerned about, if he moves on from Bill Belichick, what if he goes to a good team? We saw what Brady did for a good team when he went to Tampa. If Bill gets one of these good jobs, like if Dallas decides to move on from Mike McCarthy and Bill has immediate success there, what does that mean? for Robert Kraft. If then Bill has success after Tom had success, I think it's just going to be a fascinating couple of days here. Welcome back into Off the Pike. And I do want to continue on this Belichick thing because obviously it's the biggest story in Patriots land right now. And just looking at this, I do think there's a chance that Bill could go somewhere else if he goes to a good roster and have success. I still think he can coach as long as he's not running the team. I think Bill is still a really good coach. I've made that abundantly clear over the past week and a half or so. The other thing I wanted to mention is Ian Rappaport when he brought up the Falcons. He said a loss would drop Atlanta to one and four over its last or over its final five games of the regular season. Of course, they got killed by New Orleans. You had Arthur Smith and Dennis Allen going after it, going after each other after the game because Arthur Smith was upset that New Orleans went for a touchdown late anyway. So Rappaport went on to say it would ensure a third straight seven win season, heightening scrutiny on the progress of the football operation at a time when there could be big name coaches, including Patriots legend Bill Belichick whose name has come up frequently in connection with Atlanta in a conversation with league sources the pat over the past week, potentially becoming available. Okay, 
So if you look at this Atlanta situation, when you think about it from Bill's perspective, if this job opened up in the middle of the last decade when Bill and Tom were having like the Guerrero issues and the Jimmy Garoppolo issues, this job wouldn't make sense. Like based on the current roster, I'm not talking about Atlanta back then, based on the current roster, it wouldn't make sense, right? Even if after 2019, like if Kraft, and we were talking about this earlier, if Kraft had said, hey, Bill, Tom's going to be here. And if Bill didn't want to coach Tom anymore on the Drew Brees contract, say, there would have been a huge market for Bill and this job would not have made sense based on the roster and how it's currently constructed, right? But if you think about it, this now, when we're looking at Bill and we're looking at the Falcons, if you look at the Falcons, Arthur Blank is 81, okay? So this is a team that's desperate, not to sound bleak or anything or morbid, but he's at the age where he needs to win right now. Like Arthur Smith, Arthur Blank rather wants to win a Super Bowl, right? He's getting older. And he went the coordinator route the past two times. When you think about Dan Quinn, who we brought over from Seattle, and then Arthur Smith, who we brought over from Tennessee. One defensive coordinator, of course, one offensive coordinator. Obviously, Dan Quinn had a lot more success than Arthur Smith did. He did have Shanahan in the building. He ended up taking the San Francisco job, of course, as we all know by now. But at this point, if you're Arthur Smith, you're looking at it and you're saying, I'm 81. I've tried two different coordinators. We were really good with Dan Quinn. Then we faded away. We have not been really good with Arthur Smith at all. Do I just want to go with a proven guy? And that proven guy, there's no more proven coach in the NFL than Bill Belichick. Now, the problem is, if you look at it from Belichick's perspective, the biggest thing for them would be, hey, how do we find our quarterback? Is it, do we use our draft pick? Hey, do we say, if the Bears are going after a guy with the number one pick like Caleb Williams, do we say, hey, we'd like to take a shot on Justin Fields? Although I don't think the Patriots were high on Justin Fields when he was coming out. Maybe Bill would change his tune on that one. Maybe they'd go after Joe Flacco, depending on what happens here with the Brown situation. So it's not perfect when you think about the quarterback position, but I think about it with Bill, and he's now, what, still 26 wins behind Shula. What else is he going to do, right? Remember, he had those Marv Levy comments years ago where he's not coaching into his 70s. We're way past that. So I just think about it from this perspective. If I were Bill, I would hold out to see what happens with Dallas and Mike McCarthy, and Nora Princiati was the first one to bring that up. Like, that makes sense. Like, if, if you're going to hold out for a job, that one to me makes a lot of sense if you want to hold out for that one, just because it's a ready-made Super Bowl roster. And we could easily see Dallas choking very early in the postseason, right? We ha It's not like we haven't seen that before, right? But anyway, but at this point, I don't think winning a title is like the be-all, end-all for Bill, right? He, he said in his press conference where he didn't want to give you anything after the game, he said that he still enjoys preparing. He still enjoys getting a team ready to go, right? And clearly, you can tell, like, it's evident. Bill still enjoys coaching. And Ordinarily, you would think, okay, the Super Bowl comes first, but you have a chance to chase down history. You're 26 wins away. It's not like he's 100 wins away or 50 wins away. He's 26 wins away. If it was me, and look, I'm, I'm ne I'll never be in this position in my life, obviously. I would want to go for it, wouldn't you? So if I'm Bill and Atlanta's like the best opportunity I have, I look at the skill players. Bijan Robinson is going to be one of the best running backs in the NFL. Kyle Pitts is an absolute stud that doesn't get the ball nearly enough. Drake London is a really good player. Like they have dudes there and Bill knows he can coach up any defense. So if you think about the other portion of this, when it comes to Atlanta, and I know this is going to sound crazy based on what we've gone through over the past five years or so in, in sort of the front office stuff. I believe that Arthur Blank is like the one owner that could be desperate enough to say, hey, you know what, Bill, 
you can have control of the personnel stuff too. Like if that's what's gonna be the difference to get built, I do think Arthur Smith would go to that level. So a couple of years ago, no, this would make no sense for Bill to go to Atlanta. But the more and more you think about it, the Shula record, just he wants to keep coaching. You can tell he wants to keep coaching. This job does sort of start to make a lot more sense than it otherwise would. Now the Carolina thing, no chance. You don't take that job, it's just a bad situation. You'd have to be really high on the quarterback to do that. So I don't see that situation. But Atlanta now, like Atlanta and Dallas, those are the two teams that now make a lot of sense to me. Okay, the one other thing I wanted to mention Patriots-wise are two other things before we bring in Jamie McClellan. We'll get to some emails as well. Is Mac was the emergency third quarterback. Nathan Rourke, who nobody had ever heard of prior to like three weeks ago, was the backup. Now, maybe that is... Hey, if Zappi gets hurt, we don't want to put Mac into the game. We don't want him to get injured because hypothetically they could make a trade in the offseason and all that. So maybe that's part of it. But it just it's kind of embarrassing that this is sort of how the Mac Jones era ends. The final game that he plays as a Patriot, he doesn't or the final game of his Patriots tenure, he's not even the backup quarterback, right? Not that he didn't start. He's not the backup. He's the emergency quarterback. That's how south it went for Mac Jones. And you can really we talk about like a lot of the draft picks that Bill has messed up. But a lot of this comes back to Mac Jones, like the whole idea of, hey, you need to do all this stuff to help Mac Jones improve the offensive line, the skill players like all that was true. Like the skill players were not nearly good enough. The offensive line was not nearly good enough over the past couple of years. The coaching, Patricia and Bill O'Brien was not nearly good enough over the past couple of years. But the original sin was drafting Mac Jones. He just was not good enough to be a starting caliber quarterback for the foreseeable future in the NFL. We got one glimpse of it in 2021. And after that, we found out what he really was as a player, which was not particularly good. Okay, one other thing that we as Patriots fans have been spoiled with over the past 20 years prior to the past two years, really, is getting like really good broadcast teams. And today we have Chris Myers and Robert Smith calling this game for Fox. That was a horrible broadcast. So they kept telling us that Jay Glazer had this report on Bill Belichick. It wasn't a report. He said, actually, I think he'll be gone. He didn't even really give a report. But anyway, they... Every time they came back from commercial, they had to remind us of that. And if you really think about this, this is a Jets-Patriots game that's not even on CBS. It's on Fox, right? So not even like CBS wanted the game anymore, right? So, But if you just think about it from this criteria, the only people watching that game are Patriots fans and Jets fans, right? There's not like the casual fan that's watching it. The casual fan is going to watch a good game or they're watching Red Zone. No casual football fan is watching that game. Nobody gives a shit about that game. Right. So you don't have to keep reminding us of that because all the Patriots fans know the situation and all the Jets fans know the situation. You don't have to keep telling us about that. And they did it over and over and over again. The other thing is Robert Smith on the broadcast at one point tells us there's a salary cap floor. Thanks, Robert. No fucking shit. Everybody knows that. Like he assumed like they assumed in this broadcast. Nobody knew that Belichick was on the hot seat. Nobody had ever watched the Patriots play before. And nobody knew anything about the NFL. People know a lot about the NFL. So that thing to me was just like ridiculous. He also told us how he played with Roger Craig. Like, congratulations. I don't know. Roger Craig is not relevant to this game whatsoever. They kept telling us that the weather was getting worse. We're watching the game. They're telling us they superimposed the numbers, the yards. We know. We can see it. You don't have to keep telling us that you're superimposing this. And we found out from Robert Smith that Brees Hall went to Iowa State. And that's why he's prepared to play in these conditions. I don't know how many snow games he played in before, but I don't know how many times he had to mention that on the broadcast as well. So to me, like, that's one thing that is sort of something you never imagined as a Patriots fan, because at least for my lifetime, and I know like a lot of the older fans, they 
didn't have this their whole lifetime. The Patriots are always playing in big games when I was watching the Patriots. And it was always like Jim Nance and like Phil Simms was bad at the end. But you get my point is like they're always having the number one or the number two broadcast team for a network or they're playing like the national game on ESPN on Monday Night Football or Sunday Night Football. And now we're dealing with this. It's just like, what the hell is going on? What, like, are you telling us about the salary cap floor? You're reminding us that Belichick's on the hot seat and Jay Glazer had an opinion. We all know this. Like, you don't have to keep telling us time after time after time. It just got repetitive and it got annoying. All right, before we go any further, let's bring in producer extraordinaire, Jamie McClellan. Jamie, what's going on, man? How are you? You avoided the snow. You're in California, so you got away before the snow came down. How are you, man? I'm good. I enjoyed watching it, though. I mean, it... Was nice to live vicariously through the football game today. It looked like fun. How about you though? You got a lot of snow? Yeah, I mean not a lot, a, a decent amount, but I mean, I don't know. It, it definitely made for a uh, weird game, and maybe it helped the Patriots lose. Honestly, and I mean, and like the grand result, as I said off the top here for the Fanduel portion of this, it's a good thing that they lost in terms yeah. of they're going to get a top three pick. As we're recording right now, Dallas is up twenty-one to ten on Washington. That game's about to go to halftime. So in all likelihood, the Patriots. I'd be shocked if they if why well, and like. If they come back, Jamie, will re-record. The Patriots are going to have the number three pick, which means, <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, they're at least going to have a chance to get one of the quarterbacks here. Who knows? Like, crazier things have happened. Maybe Chicago decides, hey, let's stay with Fields, and maybe they don't trade back because they want, I, I don't know. Like, there could be a chance that Drake May goes there. Like, if Penix plays really well in mm-hmm. this national championship, maybe somebody falls in love with Penix, and then Drake May is sitting there for the Patriots at three. But they are going to have a chance, you would think, to either get Penix or Jaden Daniels. And I know Penix isn't slated to go that high. I like Penix a lot more than most, but I do think this is a good loss for the Patriots when it comes to keeping that top three pick. The only thing I think about now is like the Steelers game. Okay, that's one game, but the the Broncos game, man, like yeah. how they ever won that Broncos game, and they could have they could have easily been con- in control of this situation. But I do think at least they're going to have their choice. Like they can, if they want a quarterback, they can take a quarterback, and there's going to be one available there. Which that was at least a question. Like they could have hypothetically if all things went against them, dropped to five and been out of that sweepstakes. So I guess from that perspective, it's a good thing. Yeah, definitely. I hear you on that. I think um, you mentioning how this might be the end of the Mac Jones era definitely made me makes me think that I don't want to reach for a quarterback again this year. Like, I, I don't know specifically about Jaden Daniels or Penix, but part of me says, you know, don't don't mess around with some, you know, the third best quarterback in the draft and maybe just go for Harrison or something. But um Either way, it's good news that we, we're going to get a great player either way. Yeah, I'm with you in terms of, like, I understand your point about reaching. I just feel like, hey, if you love one of these quarterbacks, take him. I felt like Mac was different because Mac was like, hey, if he's there at 15, you take him. It's not like they traded up for Mac. It's like, hey, if he falls in our lap, take him. But if you really like one of these quarterbacks at number three, I just feel like based on the importance of the position, you got to take a guy there. If, if you really like Jaden Daniels, if you really like Penix, you got to take a quarterback. Or if Drake May falls then you got to take Drake May. If Drake May falls to three and they don't take him, I'm going to be absolutely irate, and we'll see who's making this decision. I did think it was sad, though, seeing like or it could be the final game of the Belichick era, losing to the Jets, the team that he hates the most, having that 15-game winning streak come to an end, three points for the offense, and Bill could barely speak at the post-game press conference. He's dealing with some sort of illness, obviously. He had a Zoom press conference earlier in the week because of it, so that would just stink if that's how it comes to an end for Bill. But, I mean... We're not going to remember that. Years from now, we're going to remember, of course, uh, yeah. Super Bowls and all that. I do think it's going to be interesting if, like, Brady comes back going into the Patriots Hall of Fame and, like, Bill's not there because him <laughs> and Kraft had an ugly divorce. Like, <laughs> just weird, man. I just, I, you know, I saw Jimmy Johnson just got into the Ring of Honor and the Cowboys, and that's, like, 
30 years later, like, I, you know, sometimes this stuff takes a while, especially if it ends ugly. So I hope that's not the case, but yeah. no, it, was, it was hard not yeah, to I be don't, It's not going to get that ugly. Yeah, for sure. All right, Jamie, let's get to a couple of emails that email addresses off the pike at gmail.com. What do we got? Yeah, I mean, talk of the town is definitely Belichick. So we have some some Belichick emails. Uh, this one's from Dave in North Carolina. He was writing to us during the game. He says, I'm watching this miserable game right now and just praying the Patriots drop this one with dignity, kind of, and secure the highest possible draft pick. Then Belichick can gracefully exit tomorrow after his team fought hard. He must go, though, in the most important offseason in decades, or we'll blow a massive opportunity. For Robert Kraft, I keep reciting the names. Dominic Easley, Malcolm Brown, Isaiah Wynn, Nikhil Harry, Cole Strange. So he's saying it's time to move on. What do you think? Yeah, well, I look at it from this perspective. I don't think there's any chance if Bill's back that he's in charge of the personnel anymore. Yeah. There's no way you can let him do that anymore. Like if and, and it feels like most of the momentum is pushing towards Bill not being the head coach of the team or not being the head coach or anything anymore. But if I if it was me, I'd bring him back as the head coach if he wants to not make the personnel decision. So I don't think anybody should be worried about that. I don't see a scenario where Bill Belichick is in a situation where he's running the organization to. I just don't see that being the case. So to David's question, I, I don't think Patriots fans should be worried about that. He's done too much damage. And if you're going to take a quarterback, as we were talking about, they're going to have the third pick. If you're taking a quarterback there, actually, you know what? Fuck it. It doesn't matter who you take there. I don't want Belichick making the pick. And I think most <laughs> people would agree with that. Yeah. And I think Kraft has now realized that based on sort of where the roster's at. So I wouldn't worry about that when it comes to the Patriots. If they bring Bill back, he's not making the draft pick. Yeah, I totally agree. That seems to be a consensus. Um, this is kind of a fun one, Brian. This is a potential trade. This is from Pat. Pat writes, let's just say that after the season, the Bears decide they need a top coach to get where they want to go. And Caleb Williams is too good a prospect to pass up. Who would say no to a possible trade of Bill Belichick to the Bears for Justin Fields? We get to keep the top pick for Marvin Harrison or another weapon to go with Fields. And we don't have to be as worried about the offensive line because we'll have a QB with mobility that can get out of trouble. And we can uh, move forward with a QB that's due for an extension, reset the market, etc. And Bill gets to play with a generational quarterback. I guess he means Caleb Williams. Who says no to this trade? Kind of fun. The Bears. Why would the Bears want Belichick? <laughs> they just saw how he handled a, a different young quarterback, didn't they? They just saw, like... Mac, the Mac Jones era. Why Why would they want Bill Belichick running that team with Caleb Williams, right? And a, actually, when I look at it, and I don't know if the Bears, as we're recording, are playing right now, but I haven't seen anything that the Bears are firing Eberflus. I feel like Eberflus mm-hmm. has now found a way, that with the way they play down the stretch of the season, I think that Eberflus is going to keep his job. Like, if you were going to move on from Eberflus back to the original question here, and... You were thinking about what's the best case for the organization. You want an offensive mind to go with that young quarterback, right? Whether it's still going to be Justin Fields, which I think is unlikely, and say it's Caleb Williams. I think if you were going to hire a coach, you would hire a coach that is one of these young guys that's an offensive-minded coach, right? I think that would be the more likely scenario for for Chicago. And from a Patriots perspective, if if they think there's a chance they're getting Drake May, why they would just wait and get Drake May rather than getting Justin Fields, especially considering, look, maybe it's just a whole new organization next year. Most of the people in the organization were not Justin Fields fans. They preferred Mac Jones to Justin Fields. I just, mm-hmm. I don't see them trade. And, and then here's the other thing here. 
Justin Fields next year, like you got to make a decision on the fifth year option and then you have to make a decision on signing him long term. So it's a much shorter decision than or a much shorter time period than bringing in a rookie quarterback where you have time to let that guy grow. So I just see that as unlikely. I think the most likely destination for Fields now is Atlanta, to be honest with you. Yeah, I guess the only thing, just this this uh, email got me thinking. I, I hear you, they'll probably trade Fields. But if they don't trade Fields, what do you think about them? They might be interested in like swapping that one and three pick so they can get Marvin Harrison. Maybe we throw in like one more first round pick. Do you think that's too light to get the number one pick? You're saying if they want to keep Fields? They keep Fields and then they want to add Marvin Harrison Jr. That's like the best weapon you can get from. You swap the one and three picks and then we throw in like one more first round pick next year. You think that gets it done, or do they want more? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess they could do that and try to get the try to get the Patriots to fear that if the Patriots really want Caleb Williams, but I, they could also do the same thing with Washington. Like Washington could be sitting there and say, "Hey, like they could offer the same deal to Washington, be like, hey, if you don't give us this pick, like we're gonna give it to the Patriots, right? Like if you don't exchange picks with us, I, I, I just, I, and I know everybody like there's momentum growing towards fields. I like fields. I think he's a good player. I just, I don't know how they don't take one of the quarterbacks with the first pick, because if you mess that up, then you're in major trouble. Like if field just turns out to be eh, pretty good quarterback and you missed out on the potential franchise guy, yeah. I just think you're in major trouble. And correct me if I'm wrong, this front office didn't draft fields. I hear you, and I, you don't want to look like an idiot if Caleb Williams is the best quarterback of all time kind of thing. But, you know, we talked about how the Lions have built their team up and stuff, and obviously the Bears already traded out of the one pick, and it looks great now. You know, last year they could keep doing it, and just, you know, if they amass a million first-round picks, they're going to be good either way. I think Fields looks good enough to at least be capable if he has an amazing team around him. But, you obviously, you don't want to mess up a generational quarterback, so that's probably going to be the deciding factor. Yeah, and... I give the Bears a ton of credit for that trade last year, but I would also say this. Like, how are you feeling right now if you're a Bears fan and you drafted C.J. Stroud, right? Like, yeah, if you if you just kept the pick, didn't trade with Carolina, and drafted C.J. Stroud, how are you feeling right now? Like, C.J. Stroud, watching him on Saturday night, that kid's incredible. And if you were going to ask me, which quarterback would you rather have right now, C.J. Stroud or Justin Fields? No, totally. I mean, he looked great last night. I feel like he's had a, a tough month, you know, at least – from what he was doing early this season, but he he looked amazing last night. It was really impressive, and now they're the AFC South champs. Yeah, Jacksonville decided to choke, man. I, Trevor Lawrence, I don't know what's going on with him. I, I know he's been dealing with injuries, but Tennessee won in that game, which is insane. I did not expect that result to come. I had Jacksonville in the parlay, so that was not good for me. But All right, Jamie, well, next time we pod, we're going to know something about the future of Bill Belichick one way or the other, so we'll be back with you later on this week. Make sure to get your voicemails in, 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. As good as the regular season is, there is nothing like NFL Super Wild Card Weekend. Six games, three days. For these teams, it's win or go home. But you'll always have a spot in the playoffs with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. FanDuel has so many ways for you to pick up a W. And I'm looking at this Texans-Browns game, the 4-5 matchup. I like the Browns. Joe Flacco on that team, well-rested. Flacco's playing really well this season. I like the Texans a lot this year. I really like what C.J. Stroud has done. But that Browns defense is just so tough, and it feels like they've caught some magic here with Joe Flacco. So I like Cleveland in that game, despite going on the road. So if you want to follow my picks, go to FanDuel right now. New customers get started with $150 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place your first $5 bet. 
Just visit FanDuel.com slash Pike to join today. That's FanDuel.com slash Pike. Make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 plus in president select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. All right, so this is obviously a Patriots-heavy paw, but I did want to get to some Celtics because obviously they responded after that loss to Oklahoma City with wins over the weekend. The Utah Jazz game was just an absolute demolition. Utah, Utah was playing well, and the Celtics just completely ran them out of the building, and they completely controlled that Indiana game as well, which I thought was an important game considering the fact that, and look, the Celtics will play Indiana again on Monday night, but considering the fact they lost to him in the in-season tournament, you wanted to see how they would respond, and they certainly responded. But the interesting thing to me came on Friday with the Celtics team is, so Colin Cowherd had this wild take on his show Friday where it somehow went from, he was making this whole thing about how the NBA is changing with these international stars, the Jokic's, the Giannis's, Wembenyama, because it was coming off that great spurs Bucks game and Jokic hitting the game winner on Thursday night. So he went from this, like praising these international players, to Jason Tatum's championship window is closing and could be closed, which I just thought it was ridiculous. Like, it could not have been more of a stretch, but I guess he wanted something that was juicy, right? Because if you think about it, okay, everybody knows this, that the international players are taking over the NBA. If you look at the last couple MVPs, it's two for Giannis, two for Jokic, and one for Embiid. I guess technically now Embiid's an American citizen, but you get the point. It's like, yeah, this has been going on for a while, so that's like an easy thing to say. It's not like compelling to have that sort of take. So I guess he needed to spice up the take, and he just decided, hey, let me throw Jason Tatum in here and talk about his championship window. So here's the quotes. So he says, is he going to get a title? Ask yourself. Jason Tatum broke into the NBA, and he wasn't as refined as LeBron or Steph. So let's just stop there for a second. Cowherd is saying that when Tatum broke into the NBA— he wasn't as skilled, I guess, is the terminology. Refined is the word that he used. So he wasn't as skilled or refined, the word that Coward uh, uses, as LeBron, the second best, arguably the second best player of all time. Some would argue the best. I wouldn't. But a top three player of all time, without question, right? And Steph Curry, who is inarguably a top 15 player of all time. Both of those guys were in their prime. So does it really seem realistic that a guy in Jason Tatum at 19 or 20, right, his first couple of years in the NBA, would it be realistic that he'd be as skilled as two of the top 15 players ever, two guys that have a combined now eight championships and are the two best players of their era? I would put Curry ahead of Kevin Durant, right? And remember, it took Steph a long time to get healthy in his career and get right. That's why, that's partially why... They were able to get Kevin Durant. Part of it was this whole thing with salary cap smoothing that I don't want to go into right now that the Players Association didn't want to do. But the other part of it was Steph Curry was on the same contract as Ty Lawson because he couldn't prove he could stay healthy. That's part of the reason they could fit Kevin Durant in. So it took Steph Curry a while to get his career going as well to the point about Jason Tatum. But he goes on to say Tatum wasn't as tough as Kawhi. He wasn't as battle-hardened as the old guard. He had about a two-year window to win a title because now he has to go through Giannis in his prime, Jokic in his prime, Luka Doncic is moving into his prime. I'm not sure he's as good as these guys. Was the window two years ago? Okay, he also went on to say Tatum was not ready when he first got into the league. Now he's not as good as the young guard, talking about these young guys that have now come into the league. So first of all, he mentions he has to go through Giannis in his prime. 
And we all understand that Middleton was hurt two years ago, but Middleton's not the same player anymore. I think we'd all agree on that, right? So still, he doesn't have that version of Middleton pre-injury two years ago. But was Giannis not in his prime two years ago when the Celtics beat the Bucs in the postseason and Jason Tatum at that particular point in time was in his 23-year-old NBA season? And also you look at the fact that Giannis was coming off back-to-back MVPs followed up by a finals MVP and a championship the prior three seasons. He went MVP, MVP, championship finals MVP. The Celtics beat Giannis when he was coming off all those. So I don't know what he's talking about. Giannis is now in his prime. He says Jokic is in his prime. No kidding. He just won the NBA championship, right? But by the way that he was talking about Jokic and Giannis, it almost appeared to me that he thinks Tatum is older than these guys for some reason. I I don't know if he does or not, but that's how it came across, at least to me. But anyway, and with Luka, this whole idea like Luka and Tatum, like when he's talking about Luka's now in his prime, like, okay, well, Jason Tatum is still pre-prime too. Like, if you look at when these two guys were drafted, Luka's in his 24-year-old season, and Tatum's in his 25-year-old season, right? Tatum was a one-and-done, and he was drafted in 2017, and Luka came over in 2018. So he's acting as if Luka is approaching his prime, and Tatum's been in his prime. That's just factually incorrect. This proclamation he's making is essentially that there's no room for Tatum to get better. So like this whole point about all these other guys can get better and take over the league, but Tatum can't get better. I just... I completely reject that notion. Why can't Tatum get better? I think he's growing as a player right now, don't you? And the other thing is this. Giannis is in his 29-year-old season and Jokic is in his 28-year-old season, right? And let me be clear, abundantly clear about this, and you know how I feel about Tatum. Tatum is not as good as those guys. Like, that's definitely true. Nobody would argue to that point. Nobody thinks that Tatum is a better player than Jokic right now, right? But those two guys are arguably the two best players in the sport right now, with Embiid And those guys have the championship that Embiid does. And Embiid has his questions in the postseason. But if you think about it, like those right now, if you're ranking the NBA players, those would be the top three on most people's list, right? And then if you look through the history of the league, Giannis won his championship in his 26-year-old season. Jokic's championship came in his 27-year-old season. Steph Curry was 26. LeBron was 27. Michael Jordan was 27. Now, there are exceptions. Like in the 80s, Bird and Magic immediately took over the NBA where they were right away like two of the top five players that eventually became the two best players in the league for that era. Bird won at 24 in his second year and Magic won at what, like 20, his first year in the NBA, won as a rookie. Remember, he jumped center. But since then, in terms of young guys, you don't really see it. Duncan won at 22. That was the strike season in 99. And he's a top 10 player of all time. Like he's one of the all-time greats. And Dwayne Wade won at 24. But if you remember, Dwayne Wade had one of the most dominant forces in NBA history on his team in Shaquille O'Neal. So since, I don't know why I just said Shaquille O'Neal. Nobody calls him Shaquille O'Neal. Shaq, like, I don't know why I just called him Shaquille O'Neal. But anyway, so since Larry and Magic, you have two examples of guys in recent history, right? Since 1999 that have won championships, since even, since the 90s, really, that have won championships where they're younger than 26. And you could even argue, even though Dwayne Wade was the finals MVP, you could argue that Shaq was the best player that season. Like, Shaq had an MVP case that year. And look, Wade was a better player in the playoffs, but you get my point, right? So even if you go through the Duncan-Wade thing, it's really only Duncan that's like this all-time great superstar when he won his championship. The Dwayne Wade situation was a little bit different. So this idea that Tatum missed his window, in the words of Colin Coward, it's just ridiculous to me. Now, as an organization, you could argue hey, they missed a golden opportunity, no pun intended, against the Warriors, right? 
because that year the Bucks were still dealing with injuries. The 76ers were dealing with all their drama, which it seems like there's going to be something with Philly every year. And the Celtics do own Philly, too. So there's a, that part of it as well. And the league is getting better, right? We just saw that OKC, uh, that OKC team rather last week. You also have Denver, who is a juggernaut right now coming off the championship. And they were injured the year that the Celtics made it to the finals against Golden State. Porter was dealing with an injury. And of course, more importantly, Murray was dealing with an injury, right? But I think you could also argue that that year, Tatum was in his 23-year-old season and Jalen was in his 24-year-old season. What we found out, as much as difficult as it was to find it out on that grand stage, is those two guys weren't ready yet. And the better team, Golden State, and I know like record-wise and all that, it wouldn't indicate it, but Golden State was the better team in the finals. Like there's no arguing to the contrary. The Warriors were more ready for that moment than the Celtics were, right? And this is not a shot at Tatum or Jalen Brown. It's just the reality. Tatum was horrendous from two-point range, atrocious, and they were turning the ball over like crazy, right? So yes, the Celtics, they could have won a championship ahead of schedule in terms of where their best players were at in terms of their prime, but they were not ready. Tatum was not ready and the team was not ready. So as much as you look at that as a missed opportunity, I really, after having two years now to let that marinate, like at first you're so mad that they lost in the NBA finals, right? But I've, I've accepted that just the better team won and that's ordinarily how the NBA works, right? They had things on the Celtics, forced Jalen to his left, right? After the second dribble go after Tatum, they had stuff on the Celtics, right? So that's where I'm just like, okay, like you can say, did they have, did they blow their window? I, I would just reject that notion right now because clearly right now they're a better team. And secondarily, I would argue that they were just ahead of schedule. They were not good enough to win a championship at that particular point in time, right? We all found that out when they got to the finals. So the other thing is this. Tatum has been awesome, by the way, the past two games since Coward had this take, and he's having a really good season. But when we're talking about the league's top players, yes, Giannis is better. Yes, Jokic is better. Yes, Embiid is better, especially during the regular season. We'll find out more about the postseason. He's got to finish it there, as I mentioned earlier, right? You could argue Shea is having, not argue, he's having a better season than Tatum, and Shea's got to prove himself in the postseason as well, right? So, like, there's, there's like, Tatum is not in the Jokic- and Giannis category is not in the Embiid category during the regular season for sure. So if you wanted to argue, you could argue Kawhi too with the season he's having, but you always worry about the injuries there. You could argue Steph still, even though that team stinks. We'll see if they even get into the postseason. Durant's on a struggling team, although it seems like they're starting to get healthy. But let's just say, conservatively, Tatum is somewhere between the 6th and the 10th best player in the NBA. So you have a top 10 player. Now, I think we can all agree that Tatum is not winning the MVP this season, right? And it's very rare to win a championship without a current or a former MVP on your roster. The examples of that in recent history, the 2019 Raptors, the 2004 Pistons, and the two Isaiah Thomas-led Pistons in 89-90. That's it. Like, you don't see a lot of teams. This is in recent history. You don't see a lot of teams that win a championship without a current or a former MVP. Now, Kawhi was good enough to win an MVP. He just never did. Remember the Westbrook year? He easily could have won it that season. Harden could have won it too. I would have given it to Kawhi based on the season that he had. But the point being is they didn't have an MVP. But if you look at those teams, what did all four of those teams have in common? I guess 89 and 90 Pistons, pretty much the same teams. It's like a little bit of a difference. But the main guys were the main guys. The 19 Raptors, all these teams loaded rosters that were great defensively. 19 Raptors, Kawhi Lowry, a young Siakam, Marcus Saul, a young, uh, young Fred Van Fleet. They were an all-time great defensive team. 
The 2004 Pistons, Chauncey, great point guard, Rip, great shooting guard, Tayshon Prince as like a rookie or in his second year, great defensive player. That's who they used on Kobe in the finals. Rasheed Wallace, Ben Wallace, like great defenders and guys like Prince and Ben Wallace and a lot of like really good role players. Like that Pistons team, they didn't even have a guy as good as Tatum. Now the Raptors did, but these guys didn't. If you look at the 89-90 Pistons, it's Isaiah, it's Joe Dumars, it's Rodman, it's Lambert, it's John Sally, it's Vinny Johnson off the bench, right? It's just, it's a great cast of players and it's also great defensive teams, right? Like the Pistons were known for the de defense. The old four Pistons were too. And the Raptors are maybe the best modern day defense. I'm talking about like since 2010, since the league really went offensive heavy. Like that may have been the best defense during that era. But anyway, so if you just think about this, if you look at these teams that were great defensive teams, the Celtics right now are number two in the NBA in defense. And if you don't have that current or that former MVP, as I alluded to, which is so rare to win a championship without one, and you don't have that, like Tatum is a signature player, but he's not an MVP or former MVP. What you need is a loaded roster, right? And a great defensive team. Well, the Celtics roster is better than any team in the league. And that even includes Denver, right? So even if Tatum is not on the same level as those other top tier stars, Jokic, Giannis, as we talked to, the point is with the Celtics, they have put enough around them where Giannis and Jokic, they have to be great to win four straight series, right? They have to be great to be able to do that, especially with how those teams play, where especially the Nuggets are so Jokic-centric, right? Everything runs through those guys. Same with Embiid. Definitely the same with Luka. Like, Luka, that is like, he's going to dribble the ball for, what, 15, 16 seconds, then make a decision, right? And that's not a championship-caliber team right now. Steph and Durant carry so much weight, too. Less on Durant than Steph now that the Suns are getting a little bit healthier. Early on in the season, it was a lot of Durant, but now the guys around him getting healthy, the Beals, the Bookers, etc. Now, I'm not saying Tatum could be bad in a series, but even going back to last year when the team wasn't nearly as good as this year's team, against Philly, he struggled for a, a large portion of that series until he got going at the end of game six, right? And they still won that series. So what the Celtics realized, and we talked about this with Bill last week, is they've had offensive issues in the postseason. And the issues have been glaring at times, right? And Tatum, admittedly, as we mentioned, he's not as good as Jokic. He's not as good as Giannis and those top tier guys on the offensive side like Steph Curry. But what they've done is they've given him more support than I would argue any other star player in the league has right now. They realize they have this window, right? So that's why Porzingis is here. Porzingis, of course, he had his eye poked in that game against the Pacers on Saturday, unfortunately. But if you look at his numbers this season, he's fourth in two-point percentage at 67.7%. He's 10th in true shooting percentage at 66.1%. He's sixth in win shears per 48 minutes, which is incredible. His points on post-ups are 1.47 points per possession, the best of any high-volume post player. And we told you last week with Giles, he's the second most efficient player on shots from eight feet and in. So... Now that your firepower offensively has been diversified, right? It was a team last year that relied on three so much, right? But now you have a different button to push, which is, hey, we can feed Porzingis in the post. Also, to Tatum's credit, and this is something that, I'm sorry to break this to Colin Coward, he's got a lot better at is his post game, right? He's in the 87th percentile as a post player, averaging 1.20 points per possession, and you have another guy on this team, going back to this whole theme of the players around Tatum, Jalen can get you 30 on any given night. 
Derek White, who they traded for, and since they traded Marcus Smart, it's freed him up to have a bigger role on this team, despite the fact that, I don't know why it, Missoula, like, after he picked up his fourth foul in that game on Saturday night against Indiana, he didn't play the rest of the third quarter. I thought that was a weird decision, by the way. Like, I always think you lose minutes with guys when you protect them so much from foul trouble. That's like the, Brad Stevens was ahead of the game on this. Brad would never pull guys, like, in a certain situation, sure, but I don't think he needed to sit the whole third quarter after that fourth foul. Anyway, that's a digression. Getting back to my point, Derek White is shooting 49% from the field, 41.8% from deep. He's also in the 91st percentile as a pick and roll ball handler. Okay, he's been incredible when it comes to that. So this is another option that you have on this team. And he's also one of the best defenders in the NBA. So the Celtics knew they couldn't win just being so Tatum reliant. So they made major roster changes over the past couple of years. The main one is bringing in Porzingis. You also brought in Drew. And now, as we mentioned, Derek White getting more opportunities with Marcus Smart out of the equation. So yes, the Celtics are not going to have the best player on paper in a series against the Bucks, in a series against the 76ers, or even in a series against the Denver Nuggets, of course, in the NBA Finals, knock on wood that the Celtics get there, right? And ordinarily, when you talk about the NBA, you're going to pick the star player, right? Like, when the Warriors are rolling, you're going to pick the Warriors to win. When the Heat were rolling, you're going to pick the Heat to win because they have LeBron James. When the Spurs were in the NBA Finals, you're going to pick the Spurs to win because they had Tim Duncan. I'm talking about pre-Heat series, like 07, 05, 2003. Ordinarily, you're going to pick that team. But what the Celtics are going to have is they're going to be the favorites in all these. We'll see about Denver, but all these other series, they will be the favorites. Okay. And they have the best ensemble cast of any team in the NBA, getting back to what we talked about earlier. And if you look at the 04 Pistons, they didn't and look. We know that the Lakers had a bunch of problems there internally with Shaq and Kobe, etc. The Pistons didn't even have the top two players in that series, right? Now, Kobe did not have a good finals and he shot the ball like crazy, but they had Kobe and Shaq, right? You can still win at a high level. And the Celtics have a top 10 player, it's just they don't have a top three player in the league. Now, it's tough when you look at it, right, where this group, if you think about like the long-term future of the Celtics organization, it's tougher to keep this type of group together with the new rules in terms of the second apron and all that, it's tougher to do this in the modern day NBA because of how much guys are getting paid. Like that Pistons team stayed together forever in the 80s, right? Like it's tougher to keep that group together. And even the 04 Pistons, they were together for a long time. They only had the one championship, but they were constantly in the conference finals. But I would argue the Celtics window now, like Cowherd talked about it being shut two years ago, Tatum shut two years ago. It's the next two years they have to win a championship here because eventually they're going to have to make major changes It changes, and as some of these guys age, right? And just circling back to Cowherd here, the reason he does this, and like I admittedly, like I'm telling you, I fell for the bait here. This is why we're talking about it. it but I do think it's an interesting exercise just to look at the Celtics roster and compare it to recent NBA champions. But my point with this is the reason he does it with Tatum is we will respond, right? Like, if you went on social media after this, Celtics fans were heated, right? Members of the media were heated too, right? But if you look at Devin Booker, he's two years older. He's in his 27-year-old season compared to Tatum, as we mentioned, in his 25-year-old season. He's lost in the, in the NBA Finals. and He lost in the NBA Finals prior to when Tatum did against the Milwaukee Bucks, right? And they have an injury-riddled team, as we mentioned, with Durant and with Bradley Beal, right? Like, if you're thinking about the window being shut, that would be the more concerning window being shut because who knows how much longer Durant's going to play? Who knows how healthy Beal's going to be? And not to mention the fact that Devin Booker has dealt with injuries as well throughout his career, right? So the problem for that take, right, 
which would be the more appropriate take when you're talking about this, is the reason you don't have that take if you're a coward is Phoenix fans are not going to respond the same way that Celtics fans did, right? I just, I felt like that whole thing was a bizarre way to take a shot at Tatum when it's not like, like the Celtics are, right now they're the best team in the NBA record-wise. They're playing like the best team in the NBA. They haven't lost a single game at home all season long. Like in recent, in the recent stretch, they have one loss to OKC. What is it? Eight of nine or nine of 10, whatever it is. And because a couple of international guys had unbelievable games, he decided to have this take about how Tatum's window could be shut. It just, it felt like it was completely forced, but now I can understand why he did it because he's trying to get all our attention. But anyway, Tatum, since that comment, 20 of 35, 57.1%. This is in the past two games, the Jazz and the Pacers, 13 of 21 from three-point territory, 61.9%. He has 68 points in 62.2 minutes. So he's scoring more than a point per minute. 22 rebounds, 11 assists, plus 53. He's been awesome. And now for the season, he actually got over the league average of 36% from deep, 36.7% to be exact after these last two games. And I would just say like, okay, like I want to see him get above league average when it comes to the three-point shooting consistently. I do have, as I've mentioned, my concerns about the step back game, but when he has it going, man, it's pretty. So I love that this is the best he's played all season long. The other guy that jumped out, so just to put a bow on that Tatum thing, I thought that was a ridiculous take by Coward. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. And the Celtics know that Tatum's not on the Jokic-Giannis level. There's, that's the reason Porzingis is here, to be that legitimate threat late in games. The Celtics know it. The Celtics know they've had offensive problems. That's why they've sort of changed the team and brought in new guys to help their star-level players. Okay, anyway, the other guy that jumped out to me on Saturday night was O'Shea Brissett. So he played 20 minutes in that game, and he was just three of nine from the floor, and he had just eight points. You're like, wait, how did he stick out to you? Because he had eight rebounds, three offensive. And Brad said the other day that the Celtics are looking for a bigger wing, and it could come internally. And look at what O'Shea Brissett has done since Brad Stevens made those comments. He's been really good in the past two games. And one thing that sticks out to me, he is one of the, I, I, I can't go through the whole league and like rank these, but just from watching, he's one of the best guys I've seen at coming from the corner and crashing to get an offensive rebound. And the numbers would indicate that if you look at his rebounds per 36 minutes, it's the same as Anthony Davis, who's a big, right? But anyway, just looking at this, if you look at the Celtics, second chance points per 100 possessions with Brissett on the floor, 21.1. To put that into context, the Knicks lead the league at 17.1. So they're four points better than the best team in the NBA in terms of second chance points per 100 possessions. If you look at Brissett off the floor, that number's at 15, which is still pretty good, but it's 11th compared to four points better than the best offensive rebounding team in the NBA, the best second chance point team of the NBA, if you will. So we know he can't shoot, but having that guy that plays with that type of motor to me is huge. He creates extra possessions. So you may say, okay, he's not going to hit a three, but you know what he's going to do? He's going to get an offensive rebound. He's going to find somebody that can eventually hit a three. So I think he's a really useful player, and he's a good defensive player as well. I would also say the other guy that stuck out to me on Saturday was Al, especially considering that Porzingis, he tried to come. I don't know why he tried, why they had him try to come back into the game, and then he left again. But anyway, with Al, they give him Friday off, which I've been calling for for a while. I'm not trying to take credit. I'm not saying they did this because of me, but... They've been doing this thing now. Porzingis was scheduled to play the back-to-back -back because, of course, he started the game on Saturday, had to come out. 
But I always thought, like, why don't they sometimes rest Al on the first night, especially if they're going to rest both him and Porzingis? Now, maybe now going forward, they're going to play Porzingis on back-to-backs. We'll see about that going forward. But I always thought it made no sense where they'd have them both play on the first end of the back-to-back and not in the second. But anyway, Al in that game, 10 points, 8 assists, and 7 rebounds. And he had that insane sequence where he had a steal at the wing, led the break, and found Jalen for a lob. This is like your typical 37-year-old center stuff, right? Al Horford doing this at the age of 37. I just thought that was awesome. And one other thing I've noticed about Al, and this is a credit to Joe Mazzulla, they've cut the minutes down from 30.5 minutes per game last year down to 26.5. Now, the large reason for that is that you have now Porzingis starting, but that's huge. That's why I never thought it'd be a good idea to start Al this season because you want to save his minutes. Now, his shooting is perked up. He's almost at 38% from deep now in the season, 37.8% after having a really tough start. And if you look at his last 13 games, he's 41 of 80, 51.3%. He's 21 of 51, 41.2% from deep. And if you look at his per 36 minutes numbers, 11.1 points, 9.4 rebounds, 4.5 assists, 1.7 blocks. And (laughs) just the attention detail right like he's been really good over this stretch and I do feel like and maybe this is me and maybe you're just gonna say Brian you're crazy for saying this I do think he looks like he has more energy and maybe part of that is look they didn't play him in back-to-backs last year we get all this but having him play four less minutes per game I do think that's gonna help him as the season goes on he looks really fresh right now and just in terms of defensively the game against Indiana on Saturday Halliburton was bad Four turnovers, he was a minus 14, he was 5 of 17 from the floor, he was 2 of 9 from deep. It was the second worst offensive rating for the Pacers on the season at just 100. It would have been the worst offense in the NBA. And this was the worst game they've had from an offensive perspective that Halliburton has played in. Their second worst offensive game was the game that the Celtics killed them when Halliburton didn't play. Remember, the Pacers are at 122.4 in terms of their season offensive ranking, which is the best in league history. 126.3 with Halliburton. That's in the 98th percentile via cleaning the glass. And in this game on Saturday, the Celtics held them to a 100. I thought, like I tweeted out before the game, hey, could we actually see what the Celtics did the other night where they put Tatum on Shea late? And now we didn't see that, putting Tatum on Shea late. But what we did see is we saw Drew Holiday do a good job on him. We saw... Derek White, although he was dealing with foul trouble, they just did a much better job on Halliburton. And I was awfully impressed with that, considering the fact that this is a team that the Celtics had struggled with just a couple of weeks ago when they played him in the in-season tournament. All right, so that was kind of my Celtics thoughts. I thought that I needed to address the Colin Coward thing because that was just completely over the top to me. But I do like the way the Celtics have responded since that OKC loss, and we'll see what they do on Monday night. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in, 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 
1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York.